you're listening to a message from Kaleo Phoenix, a church plant in downtown Phoenix, Arizona, that creates space for people to practice the ways of Jesus together. All right. Well, welcome. February 7th, 2021. Here we are. If you look around and you listen to the sounds of this city and you see the scaffolding and you see the screens and walked down earlier to get a coffee and it was very happening, I guess would be the word. There's a lot of stuff going on in this area. And when we think about it, where we live is exceptionally unique. We should not technically be able to live here. The desert is a wild and dangerous place, yet here we are, the fifth largest city in the country, the youngest median age in the country, people coming in in droves into Phoenix, Arizona. Yes, there's a water shortage, but it doesn't stop us from populating this great city. There's something about it when apparently Back in the day, 150 or so years ago, when Jack Swilling came, a Confederate deserter, was traveling the Wild West and believing in manifest destiny and that God had given them the right to take it, saw this land and thought, this looks good. Saw some water canals and decided to irrigate it. Little did or I guess he knew, but little did people know around him that he was onto something. With a little bit of water in this place, life could thrive in Phoenix, Arizona. And time has gone by and it grew, especially when the air conditioning unit was made affordable. People started to come here in droves and we've had more and more influxes of population. We're the fifth largest city now. But when you look out and you go out for a hike maybe, It's a wild place, isn't it? It's wild. It's kind of like being on the ocean and seeing this vastness of danger, the chaos of the waves. The desert does that same type of thing in our lives. It's kind of crazy that we are here right now. We are currently in the season of Epiphany, and what we do at Kaleo is we follow the church seasons based on the liturgical calendar. And Basically, we've just operated in this for a year now, and it's basically our structure, our guide, the framework in which we operate as pastors and as a church. And we had Christmas at the beginning of this year where God comes to be with people. Now we're in the season of Epiphany, which means God making himself known to us. We're in the book of Mark, and Mark chapter one is full of story. It's kind of like, have you seen those roller coasters when... There's not like the buildup or anything. There's like the jet push and people's heads just go whipping back. It's one of those chapters. One of his favorite transitions is immediately, immediately, immediately. And he just jumps right into it. We've gone to the Jordan. We've seen Jesus baptized. We've been in the wilderness with Jesus as he was tempted and resisting Satan. We've been to the Galilee where the fishermen dropped their nets. We have been last week to the synagogue where Jesus spoke with authority and drove out the unclean spirit. Now we find ourselves leaving the synagogue. It is the Sabbath, meaning it's a sacred day for the Jewish people. And my son is yelling loudly as he has joy in the bubbles. 
We're going from the synagogue on Sabbath now to a home, and I'm going to read verses 29 through 31 in Mark chapter 1. After Jesus left the synagogue with James and John, they went to Simon and Andrew's home. Now Simon's mother-in-law was sick in bed with a high fever. They told Jesus about her right away. So he went to her bedside, took her by the hand, and helped her sit up. Then the fever left her, and she prepared a meal for them. We'll stop right there before we continue the text today. Jesus has just driven out an unclean spirit. It's a big scene in the synagogue. The scribes are confused. The disciples' mouths are wide and news starts to circulate in the region, in this little area about what Jesus has done. There is a new teaching. You know, Jesus is probably walking to have his Saturday meal with his community in the home, which is a rhythm that he follows and that the Jewish people in that area follow as they leave the synagogue and go to the house for the meal. And I could see Jesus walking a little bit ahead of the crowd and his disciples nudging Simon, hey, your mother-in-law has a fever. She's sick. I wonder, I wonder if Jesus could do the same thing he did with that unclean spirit. Because for those in the room at Simon's house, fever was equated to spiritual involvement, interaction. We see in Leviticus 26, 16, Leviticus is a tough book, but it's there. So we need to read it, but we read it through the lens of Jesus. I will bring terror on you, consumption and fever that wastes the eyes and cause life to pine away. Ew. But nevertheless, That's what they believed. So she's laying in bed. Maybe something happened around her that caused her to get this fever. Maybe she did something to deserve this fever. Maybe it's an unclean spirit causing it. Maybe it's God, God's self, causing this fever. But they ask. And I see Jesus walking into the home, going into the room or the space where her bed would be and gently leaning down, making eye contact reaching with her palm in his palm. Did he whisper something? Did he talk to her? Did he give her the secrets to the kingdom of God? We don't know. Mark leaves that out. All we know is that his presence and his touch, he lifts her up and she is healed. He lifts her up and she is healed. Unlike the unclean spirit in the synagogue, there's no shrieking and violent revolt against this healing presence. No, there is just the subtle surrender of rising to one's feet. And immediately, immediately serving them. Now, when we hear of the mother-in-law getting up after being bedridden for a while, we think of we, we think it's a little odd and a little inappropriate to go into. And then she cooked for the men in the house. That's what she did. Uh, Ophelia Ortega says it like this. Simon's mother-in-law interprets the gift that she had received. Her service cannot be understood as a woman's menial work under the domination of lazy males, but as the true messianic ministry, creator of Jesus's new family. For this reason, this woman is Jesus's first servant and joins him in the radical announcement in action of the kingdom of God. She is his first deacon. Think about that. I came from a fairly conservative evangelical tradition and our church had deacons and they were all men. 
we weren't allowed to have women as deacons because the Bible clearly says, which anytime somebody says the Bible clearly says, they need to read the whole thing because it never really is that clear on a lot of things. But she serves him, and the word for service is the same word that the angels who were with Jesus in the wilderness come and tend to Jesus' needs, and they serve him. It's the word we, the Greek word we get the word deacon from. That same word is given to this woman, the very first person to serve in Jesus' new ministry. We look to what women did in the Bible, and when we see them serving and called servants, I think it's safe to say women can serve. Women can preach, women can lead, and all of the things that for some reason are a lightning rod in some of the circles that we find ourselves in. She is the first deacon. She and Jesus share the same liturgy. Her work is the beginning and the announcement of the gospel. Simon and the others do not yet understand this meaning. They do not want to be servants of each other until after Easter. We have uh, eight chapters later in chapter 9, verses 33 through 35, the, the disciples are arguing about who's the greatest. And for us as the readers starting in chapter 1, we're privy to the, to the fact that Jesus is the Son of God. We know this, but the audience with Jesus at the time that Mark is writing about do not know this. So we, as the the audience, the the reader has this outside insight that the people in the story do not yet know. So we can feel the fact that she gets it and they do not. In verse nine or chapter nine, verse 33 through 35, after they arrived to Capernaum and settled in the house, Jesus asked his disciples, what were you discussing on the road? But they didn't answer him because they had been arguing about which of them was the greatest. He sat down called the 12 over to him fairly paternally and said, whoever wants to be first must take last place and be the servant of everyone else. The unnamed mother-in-law fully embodies what it means to respond to healing. For when we are redeemed, we are compelled to service. So let's not overcomplicate it real quick because when we hear stuff about service or we've been through uh, church services where we talk about service or in our own personal reflection on what it means to serve, we get these ideals of this grandeur of servitude that is intimidating. We think we are to sell all our possessions and move to Calcutta and take care of those who are on the street, the marginalized. Good thing. It is definitely a good thing. But that's a lot. We think of standing in food lines and handing out food to the needy, which again is a good thing. We think of going and providing dental care and medical care to those who are the least of these in the community. Again, that is a good thing and things that we want to do. We think of leading discussion groups in homes and having your stuff together in a way that equips you to be a servant. And that again is a good thing but it can be quite intimidating. What if we are to boil down this service as to cooking a meal, sending a text saying, I'm thinking about you, lending an ear, having a conversation with somebody, or what about the service of just showing up in people's lives? It's not overly 
complicated. But in our society, we like to sensationalize and prodigize, don't we? I mean, look at the Marvel movie industry. We're obsessed with superheroes. Why? Because they're what we wish we could be, but we know that it's impossible, so we live vicariously through them. Pick your hero. And we watch it and we consume it and we pay for it. But what happens is that infiltrates our culture in the church too, to where now when we think of serving Jesus, we have this superhero mindset of you get it if you can speak, if you can sing, if you can lead, if you can do this. And we forget the fact that the work is called to be the unnamed, touched by Jesus, rising to our feet and simply serving him where we are. It's not that complicated. You know, there's studies done by the University of Zurich, and in one of the studies, they showed like the impact generosity has on our brains. I don't know the exact parts of the brain because there's big medical words, but I'm sure a few of you in the audience could probably correct me later. But they took an MRI scan of those, the group that was given money to be generous with compared to the control group that was uh, given money and said to do whatever you want with it. One group was instructed, be generous with it. The other one was said, just do whatever you want the MRI scan showed that there were higher elevation of, of hormones in the brain that controls altruism, happiness, and decision-making. We're wired in a way to be generous people, but again, that's a countercultural thing in our society, which is gain more, get more, and look out for you. You do you, I'ma be me. Subcultural to be Generous, which seems that we operate better when that happens. The ways of the old kingdom said, look out for yourself. Like Satan's temptation to Jesus in the wilderness, look out for yourself. Feed yourself. Do the things that draw people to yourself, and it'll all be yours. Yet Jesus resists. And in Mark 1, we see the new kingdom being announced not in words, but in action. In action, the authority of Jesus being rooted in his being and what he does. And when the presence of Jesus is around, it heals. And when we are healed, we are compelled to serve. That's the first part of the story. It goes on. Mark 1, 32 through 39, Jesus has healed the mother-in-law. She has cooked food for them and sunset happens. In this time, Sabbath ends at sunset. That's the Jewish day. And then it gets wild. That evening after sunset, many sick and demon-possessed people were brought to Jesus. The whole town gathered at the door to watch. So Jesus healed many who were sick with various diseases and he cast out many demons. But because the demons knew who he was, he told them not to speak. Jesus is concealing his identity in this moment. Before daybreak the next morning, Jesus got up and went to an isolated place to pray. Later, Simon and the others went out to find him. When they found him, they said, everyone is looking for you. But Jesus replied, we must go to the other towns as well and preach to them too. That is why I came. 
So he traveled throughout the region of Galilee, preaching in the synagogues and casting out demons. At Kaleo, we create space to practice the ways of Jesus. One of the ways we practice the ways of Jesus is we look into scripture and we ask ourselves, what did Jesus do? We know just this crazy day that Mark has depicted just on the Sabbath, Jesus goes to the synagogue And then after the synagogue, he goes to the house. After the house, he goes inside the community. After that, he goes to bed. And then he rises early and he goes through the wilderness. I think it's important for us to pay attention to this rhythm in which Jesus operates in his life. But then also the fact that the town is going wild over this new person, this prophet, this one with authority, this new teaching. There's excitement and buildup. Word has spread about the healings Jesus has done. And everyone wants a piece of it. Jesus, being a generous servant, meets the people where they're at outside the door. And because the people are coming who are sick and possessed, Jesus heals many. It's never just individual, but Jesus' presence heals the whole community. We could preach another sermon on that later, but not today. He wants the sermon now. But Jesus heals the many. It's a chaotic evening. There's a lot going on. Everyone's hustling and bustling. There's no social distancing, no mask wearing, the stinky breath presence of people rubbing sweaty in their face is there. And Jesus meets the people where they're at as they seek to be in his presence. He goes to sleep and so does the household. And you know, Simon and Andrew and the other followers are just unable to go to sleep. Melatonin's not a thing at the time. They can't close their eyes. They are excited with the anticipation of this new start of this new thing that they get to be a part of. They wake up the next morning, probably sleeping in a bit because now they don't have to go to the lake and fish before the sun comes up. And Simon asks his mother-in-law as he's checking in to make sure the healing stuck, hey, have you seen Jesus? She says, no, he wasn't up when I started cooking breakfast. And he's like, okay, okay, cool, 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 cool. Um, Andrew, have you seen Jesus? No, I haven't. I thought he was with you. No, he's not with me. All right, all right. Hey, anybody, have you seen Jesus? No, we haven't seen him. What's going on? I can't find him. Will you search for him? Yeah, we'll search around the house and, and around the block. They divide up and they start searching and they start looking, but Jesus is nowhere to be found suddenly. In the disciples' chest, their heart starts to race because Jesus is not where he is supposed to be because the crowds are starting to gather. There's some more work for him to do. There's some more things for him to accomplish. There's this new way that they've invited, been invited into. Yet Jesus has abandoned his post. So they start to search. They fan out. The crowd starts to search. Where is he? We have more people that need to be healed. We went to the neighboring town to bring over so-and-so and and Aunt Susan in her cough. We've brought all these people to him and he's nowhere to be found. After some time, they find Jesus. And where is he? He's in the wilderness alone. I wonder how often Jesus had done this prior without it being noticed. 
I kind of think it was one of his rhythms just in general where he'd get up before the town and go out and we'll see later in, in this gospel and the other gospels, Jesus constantly finding time and creating space for him to be alone with God. But for the first time, it gets noticed that he's missing because for the first time, the crowds need something from Jesus and they go out and they find him. And the word is, is hunted for, deliberately, frantically searched for Jesus and they find him. And Peter, in the first time, but not his last, is going to correct Jesus and say, where have you been? Everyone is looking for you. Jesus you're not where you're supposed to be. What are you doing? What are you doing out here? The crowd's that way. And Jesus is not confounded and confined by their expectations. He's created space to learn what God's expectations were. The temptation is still there, the one that Satan tempted him with in the desert. I believe Jesus constantly wrestled with temptation because he was fully human. In fact, he probably experienced temptation to its fullest because he's the only one that didn't give in, where we all give in to temptation at some point so we don't feel the full weight of it. I think Jesus battled with it. And as he's serving and as he's healing and as the hype is generating, he knows what could happen? He could make the Galilee this healing center and he could gain fame and finance and fortune. And he could just touch people and free them of their affliction and they could all come to him. But instead, Jesus makes space in his own life to hear what God has to say. They were frantically searching for this unpredictable Jesus. And when they found him, they saw him alone in the wilderness with the father. Now, I want to draw us again back to the wilderness. We talked about in the introduction today that we are in a wild place, but we look around and it seems to be flourishing. Jesus goes again to a wild place, which in the same chapter, Jesus was in a wild place in the Judean wilderness. And it was not a place of plenty. It was a place of fasting, of scarcity, it was a place of temptation and trial. But now he goes to the wilderness and it's a place of abundance and restoration and calm. By Jesus going into the wilderness the first time, he redeemed that which was tainted and took the wilderness into what it was always meant to be. And Jesus, like he healed the mother-in-law, healed the land. And in that place, he spent time with the Father. Wherever you're at in your life right now, I mean, we, I'm tired of saying the, the numbers 2020 together. I'm tired of talking about them and like going through the laundry list of the terrible things that have happened this past year that are not fully finished. But we've collectively embarked in a wilderness together. But even individually or as family units, you've been through the wilderness. Whether it's relationally, work-wise, or whatever, we know what it means to go through the wild places. Now, I want us to, for a moment, picture ourselves alone in the wilderness with Jesus. Jesus. 
Pick your spot. You might be a mountain person. Go to the mountain, sit under the tree, look at the leaves blowing. You might be a beach person. You're in South America. Nobody else is on the beach. Your toes are in the sand and you're listening to the water and the waves crash against the shore. You might be a snow person. You are plumped down in the snow, looking at the seemingly perfect powder that lies on the mountain. Now, where you're at, wherever you're at, whether it's warm or cold or somewhere in between, take a deep breath through your nose and exhale through your mouth. What does that air smell like? Is it mixed with pine or sea salts or the wetness of the snow? How does it feel going into your lungs? Does it sting a little bit or is it fully refreshing? In that space, as wild as it may be, uninhabited by the scaffolding and the cranes and the cars, you find yourself mirroring the way of Jesus. Because Jesus knew, Jesus knew in the robust demands of his own ministry, he had to create space for that thing that you were feeling right now. And ultimately, the wilderness is redeemed. The wilderness is redeemed. Now, I don't know what's going on inside your spirits and inside your souls at this moment. I invite you to feel it, maybe. The way I describe it at times is my chest feels tight or fluttery. Whatever that is, there's a wilderness inside your spirit and there's the old ways marked with trial and tribulation and scarcity, but then there's also the new ways. You are in a space right now that is sacred in the sense that we have communally gathered in order to be present to the spirit of God together. That's a sacred space. Now that sacred space, I hope and I pray, is something that compels you out of this place to share in the rhythms of Jesus. What are they? Well, quite simply, Jesus went to church. He went to the synagogue. He went home and he ate with his friends. He went out into the community and loved people well. And he went out to the wilderness to be alone with God. What does it mean to practice the ways of Jesus? It's not that complicated. We look to what Jesus did. The band's gonna come back up here as we draw to a close. We look to the ways of Jesus. We see what he did and we see his rhythms and we know that the disciples don't quite get it in Mark until Mark chapter nine when, when Peter confesses you know, who Jesus is. But as followers of Christ, we live in somewhat turbulent and complicated times. Yeah. I love it when those don't pick up on the podcast, by the way. And so you can just hear me responding. And I'm like, don't respond, don't respond. But I cannot. I have to do it. But we know that it's polarized, complicated, crazy times. And life seems 
very complicated at, at times. I, even this morning, I was kind of in like a flow mentally. I was like, oh, this is good. It's a different time to do church. The rhythm feels good. Uh, and I was going to my truck and my truck door was open and my truck had been utterly ransacked. I mean, papers, the trash that I should have thrown away a while ago. I could tell that the person who got in there was frustrated because they decided just to make it messy because it couldn't take anything of value. But things come out of nowhere unpredictably all the time. And the way that we feel it sometimes is it just feels wild and unpredictable. But I want to say following the ways of Jesus is not meant to be complicated. It's actually quite simple. We look to what Jesus did and we follow in those ways. But because I said uncomplicated and simple does not mean easy. It doesn't mean easy because we still live in the tension of the in between the now and the not yet. But at our office, we have uh, recently embarked as a staff, mainly myself with them watching, in a jigsaw puzzle, a very complicated jigsaw puzzle, a very beautiful jigsaw puzzle. And we started doing it, and at first I, I opened this puzzle and I dumped it out on our coffee table, and it was overwhelming. It was overwhelming, and I was immediately met with outward regret, like, dang, this might be a little too much for us to handle at this moment. And then I also had the objection that as soon as one of my kids comes into this office, this puzzle's gone. We're gonna get to the end and there's gonna be four or five pieces missing and I'm not gonna be okay. But nevertheless, spread out the pieces. I tried to overcomplicate it. I was doing it by color, putting them in their corners, but there's just too many pieces to do that. So I decided just flip them over. Let's flip them over. And I started with one piece, one connecting piece. I'm not very far into this puzzle, but I will say it's a, a puzzle of Mary uh, with flowers around her. I almost finished Mary in like five days. It's not that complicated. However, it's intimidating and it starts with one Peace. I believe that's the same thing with us practicing the ways of Jesus together. While it might seem complicated, you might be confused by the word of epiphany for the season that we're in. You might not quite feel comfortable or even welcomed in this space, which I pray is not the case. But ultimately, I want you to hear this. It's not that complicated. Jesus seeks to reach down with where you're at and raise you to your feet. And we are called to practice and mirror the ways of Jesus together. And just like that puzzle, it's never meant to be done alone. It's a group project. It goes a lot faster. I will convince Chris and Aaron eventually to help me on this puzzle. That is hopefully their main takeaway after today. But I just want you to know that you're not alone. Jesus sees you, he reaches down beside you, and he restores you, and he gives you a rhythm in which you are called to lead, to live. It's the framework in which creates a flourishing life with us, showing us how to be human with the rhythms of life that are actually backed by science and psychology in the most beautiful way. Showing us that a generous life is actually a happier life. Who would have thought, Jesus? That a life embracing solitude and going into the wilderness to be alone gives you what you need to be in community and the best version of yourself. 
that sacrifice actually is better for the whole of human society. Who would have thought? Then Jesus shows us. Time and time again, Jesus shows us. He lives by the rhythms that are the structure of his flourishing and shows us how to do that. So if you're on the mountainside, you're in the snow, you're on the beach, wherever you find yourself, my prayer is that you create space in your life to be alone. Don't read other people's prayers. Don't open the Bible. I know blasphemy, but be alone. Take a few deep breaths. Have your thoughts, dismiss them. And know that you are loved exactly for who you are, just as the spirit descended on Jesus in the Jordan before he had done a thing. You are loved for who you are. Before Jesus had casted out a demon or healed a feverish woman or healed the masses in a community, you are loved for who you are. There's a narrative of the old world and it continues to infect and I feel it all the time, yet you were still seen and called into this new way that is propelled and capitulated by Jesus himself. For that, we have hope. For that, we give thanks. For that, we take a deep breath and we say, thank you, God. Jesus, we are incredibly thankful just for the opportunity to be here today. God, for the bubbles going in the back with the kids playing. For the sun being a little hotter than anticipated, yet not so bad that it's unbearable. And for the noise and the whoops and the hollering of people having meals together in the city that we love. God, we're thankful just to be here. We lose sight of it all the time, and that's okay. We're thankful for the grace that you give us. God, we're surrounded by friends, some that we don't know yet. May we lean into it and place you at the head of our tables and live this life to the fullest degree we can. It's in your name that we pray and your ways that we practice. Thanks be to God. Amen. For more resources or information about Kaleo, please visit our website at kaleophx.com or follow us on social media. If this episode has been helpful to you, let us know or share it with someone you know.